Coming to you from Venice, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Jeff Dyer, author of books fictional, non-fictional, and in between on subjects like jazz, travel, photography, World War I, uh, the Andrei Tarkovsky film Stalker, and many more. He's got a big day today, the day we're recording. Three books coming out, two reissues of early novels, actually the first American editions of his early novels, The Search and The Color of Memory. They came out in the other order, The Color of Memory and The Search, from Grey Wolf Press, and a new book called Another Great Day at Sea, Life Aboard the USS George H.W. Bush. Jeff, why, why does America need to land planes on boats? <laughs> oh, what a great opening question, Colin. I mean, uh, it's... <laughs> It's one of those great questions I'm not sure I have an answer to, uh, except any, it's a real, sort of any world power now has to have an aircraft carrier. To that extent, it's quite significant that we, the English, the British, don't have one, because, of course, it's phenomenally expensive. Did, did the British have one? Oh, yeah, we had the, uh, the Ark Royal, I think. I think that was, that was the one they were using during the Falklands War, which was our last big sort of imperialist gesture really and uh, it was quite a sort of proud moment in a way in that these these great planes the sea harriers the hawker harrier jump jet they played a big part in the battle for the Malvinas or the Falklands and uh, the, yeah they were launched from an aircraft carrier and now I can't remember whether it was the Ark Royal it probably wasn't maybe it was the Invincible but anyway one of one of those there was a day then when your people had an aircraft carrier. And I mean, I realized I'm ignorant of my own people's aircraft carriers with the details you reveal in this book. I mean, they, first of all, planes don't land on them. They get pulled in by a hook There's a that pulls them out. Well, they, they land on them and then the hook, uh, or rather the planes have a hook, and then the, uh, the arresting wire catches the hook and prevents the plane from just speeding right off the, uh, right off the other end. But yeah, I don't know how many aircraft carriers the U.S. Navy has, but uh, uh, it's uh, it's quite a few, and they're extremely big. Now, when you get the call from Alain de Baton saying, well, "What does he say? Where do you want to go? I want I want to put you on a on an aircraft carrier, some kind of military place for my writers and residence program." What was it? Literally a call from him? Uh, it was a call from him, but the call didn't take quite the form uh, of of uh, that you. That you've put it in. Uh, he he uh, got in touch and said, "Was there somewhere unusual? I would like to be uh, a writer in residence." With no, uh, it wasn't narrowed down at all. And uh, I very quickly realised it was crazy to think of anywhere that you might end up going in the normal course of your life. It had to be so, just to make it worth my while. It had to be somewhere where this was the only way I could possibly have got access to it. Uh, and, you know, uh, in no time at all I thought of, I thought, well, this probably means it would be good to go somewhere military because I'd been increasingly interested by the military. And then quite soon after that, just in a sort of low-rent way, in exactly the same way that if you're a, you know, if you write for magazines and they say, you know, is there some, you know, do you want to go somewhere for our travel pages? You, you... You don't say, oh yeah, I'll write about the place I went to last week when I spent a weekend in Seattle or whatever. You very quickly think of a, of a kind of trip that you couldn't otherwise afford. 
So uh, I, I um, opted for this uh, experience, which I would never have been able to have in the course of my normal life, which was to be on a, an American aircraft carrier. And then, you know, I, I put that forward in the way that you might you might say, you know, if you ask me, you know, who would you most like to go on a date with? And I'd say Charlotte Gainsbourg, you know, and uh, who, by the way, Alain de Botton is also very keen on. We share that something that we, uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 a fondness that we share. Um, you know, and then you would, you know, you wouldn't compromise your, your first choice like that. And then behind the scenes, there must have been a lot of administrative effort, administrative effort put in to uh, to get me on the carrier and sure enough my first choice of date came up <laughs> now why did he why did he choose or why did he want you specifically to write about an institution like this so how did he know you would be you would be the one to write about or to, to know of an interesting place to go to well uh, I, I'm not sure whether he uh, whether he had any sense of the of uh, any of the writers' abilities to write about a particular place, but I think he approached the writers that he liked. And uh, at the risk of sounding immodest, it wasn't a bad idea on his place to get in touch with me, because to me it seems that one of the things that unites my, uh, you know, really quite diverse, wide-ranging body of work. I think place is pretty pretty central to it, actually. Uh, yeah, I would say place is the single most important thing. It is a nexus of interests. Everything connects at place. Yeah, very well. I like that, yeah. Um, yeah, I... I when you when you when you re-edit it, edit this, perhaps you can do it in such a way that I use the word nexus. <laughs> Possible, I can change the pitch a bit on which on who said what. But tell me, you say in the book, you know, it, you wanted to go on an aircraft carrier. England does not have one at the moment, and had England had one, it wouldn't have been a good idea anyway because you'd have been surrounded by English accents, English people. Why, why have English people so worn you down? Um, do you know, well, uh, the the experience of being English, it seems to me, it's it's not that they have worn me down. To be English is, in a sense, to be born worn down. <laughs> yeah, that's well put. Yeah. Yes, and one can put this uh, historically, really, because of course, by the time I was born, and I'm so conscious that there is a, a born worn rhyme going on here. You know, England was it was it was it was pretty well worn out. It was worn out by the Second World War. It was economically devastated by that, partly because we had to pay you lot back for the the Marshall Plan or whatever it whatever it was. Um, and then a condition of um, winning of, of being on the winning side of the Second World War is that we uh, you know that the empire was coming to an end, which was of course a, a very good thing. So that. That sense of, of, of post-imperial decline is so imminent to the idea, it seems to me, of being of being uh, English. It's less of a problem for the Scots and the Welsh because they can always claim they've been colonised by the by the English, as opposed to being part of the colonising power that is Britain. So yeah, there's a uh, you know one is one was I was born into a declining country, and then of course there's the. Um, just the, the daily kind of uh, 
disappointments of uh, of of, uh, of England of of England really. The, um, the I mean, I guess what happens is that the all the economic things manifest them and manifest themselves in a particular psychological way. So, although we've had some uh, brief periods of some brief sort of renaissances, such as winning the World Cup in 1966. It's really been, you know, as, as my friend Sukhdev Sandhu put it so brilliantly, when he back, went back to England recently, he said to him it seemed like the whole country was in the grips of a, a nationwide downer. <laughs> and, um, you, know, with the, you know, with the recent recession, you know, it was, it was bad here as well in America, but there was something about it where it felt like it was... Um, here it was un, it was at odds with the basic American optimistic spirit whereas I, I I felt in England there was we kind of welcomed it in a psychologically in a way because this seemed the true expression of the state of things a, a depression so there's I mean I I'm very conscious that I'm working towards that Raymond Williams phrase, the idea of, you know, of a structure of feeling. It brings us to the England you, one will read about, an American can now read about, in The Color of Memory, your first novel reissued that draws from your life in the 1980s in London, in Brixton, on the dole, doing, doing what you could. The London of this book, there's a passage in the book where the character, the protagonist, talks about walking over a bridge, looking at the river, and seeing the river as oily, dark, and full of harm, which describes the London of the color of memory fairly well, or at least through this character's eyes, it is oily, dark, and full of harm. There's random beatings, everything's broken, vomiting on the tube, uh, the character nails metal all over his doors because of the likelihood of being the door just kicked down by thugs. What was wrong with London at that time? Well, yeah, this is um, the London of the mid-80s, and I can sort of contextualize that quite easily. It was the, you know, it was the heyday of, uh, of Thatcherism, when, you know, the, the, it was this sort of, the, the, yeah, it was this kind of freebooting, devil-take-the-hindmost capitalism when everything was being privatized. And in a way... It, all of the kind of culture of that time was about these kind of yuppies and it's a it's quite a while since I've even used the word yuppies or these bankers making lots of money all this kind of stuff and that was in a way a dominant culture but I think what was interesting about this time is that the older England whereby you know of the, the welfare state all those kind of safety nets were still in place and so for somebody like me, some, somebody of my age, I'd left university, which had been free, and of course there were no jobs to, to, be, to be had, uh, but it was possible to lead a, a, a life quite, quite nicely on the dole if you settled for a, a sort of low income. And uh, so in a weird way, amidst all the brokenness that you've described, it was possible to lead a really quite idyllic life, which is now... Um, now no longer available now that London is not nearly as broken but I mean that's a different you know I, th I think the brokenness yeah we, we, we could talk about that but um, uh, yeah it was possible to, uh, to, to, li to live in this really yeah, quite, quite, quite an idyllic way uh, I think but yeah it was um, yeah it, it, it really was in, in Brixton in particular it was a very it was a very exciting uh, time to be there but it was very very uh, it was very rough there was a constant possibility of getting both mugged on the street 
and robbed, sort of robbed in your home. It's uh, money in a shoe as well, because you know I'll probably get mugged. I mean, yeah, and all of that was absolutely true. And you know, I remember one time I was, uh, I shared my flat with my flatmate. He was in one bedroom. My girlfriend and I were in the other bedroom. And then, uh, you know, she opened the, uh, she, she noticed our bedroom door open and somebody had broken into the flat while three of us were there sleeping in it. And then uh, she rather courageously leapt out of the bed and the guy dashed out of the... Oh, it's uh, there still. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, it's what, I, I don't think the phrase existed back then, but it was a kind of home invasion. And that was all... Uh, you know that was that was just the sort of reality of how things were, and I think in a way, back then though, we used to go to this fantastic pub called the Atlantic, where, for example, Courtney Pine would be playing uh, and uh, Steve Williamson. It was the sort of jazz renaissance going on, and it was incredibly violent that pub. I mean, you would be really reluctant to go for a pee in the toilets because of the certainty of getting mugged there. And but I think when you're when you're young, you know, that kind of thing is quite exciting. So, you know, you can't read anything about New York these days without getting somebody probably a bit older than me, without getting sort of, I don't know, Lenny Kay or somebody like that reminiscing about how great New York, the Lower East Side of New York was, uh, you know, when it was, uh, when it was bankrupt and, uh, and cheap and, and really quite dangerous. Contrast for me then the deep pessimism and crumbling infrastructure of the of the color of memory London with the attitudes and built environment of the USS George H.W. Bush. Uh, yeah, well, in a way, I don't think I need to uh, particularize it quite as precisely as that because, you know, in a way, the aircraft carrier is a little sort of, um, you know, it's, it's America itself on a small scale. And like many people... When, like many visitors from England, you know, when I first came here to America, I loved the, the sort of psychic change. Uh, I loved that, you know, American can-do attitude, that kind of, you know, the answer's yes, now, what's the question? Right. Uh, which was so... I hadn't realised up until that point the extent to which the English equivalent... The answer's no. Now, don't even tell me the question. Uh, I hadn't even realized I'd grown how negative the culture that I'd grown up in was. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, the difference is essentially uh, between, you know, uh, England and America like that. And one can see how the, uh, you know, these things are never just the expression of, or rather, all these sort of psychological or attitudinal things, they're always uh, shaped by an economic thing. And, you know, uh, as, as we were saying earlier, you know, Britain's been, uh, uh, you know, it, coping with the fact that it's in... De these, these are manifestations of, it, of its decline, I think. And they, it says, I mean, it, it's, I mean it's, it's, uh, it's manifested in so many ways. And in, in some ways... For example, in some, there's a positive attitude uh, aspect to it. So I, you know, I think everybody rejoiced in a way when that cussed old landowner up there in, I think it was Scotland, where Donald Trump, you know, wanted to build a golf course, and there was one bloke living on a sort of really shitty, he had his shitty bit of land, but he he refused to sell to Trump and just stood in his way and. You know, that's kind of great. I mean, there was nothing admirable about this person, but that cussedness uh, in the face of, 
you know, Trumpism is uh, is good. And then, to, I mean, let's put a more positive thing on this. You know, when I think of, you know, uh, role models or great British heroes, well, of course, people always say Winston Churchill, uh, uh, a rather dubious choice in many ways. But, you know, the people that make me proud to be British are people like the McLeibel too. You know, those two anarchists, I think they might have been Welsh, who were involved in distributing that pamphlet outlining all of the sort of malpractices at, the, at, at McDonald's, and then they got caught, taken to court and then devoted something like the next God knows how many years of their lives I think he was a postman and I don't know what she was doing, to taking on this, you know, this great, awful uh, you know, cor corporate giant, and uh, so I, I like that kind of stubbornness of uh, of uh, of uh, that's an aspect that is another side, I guess, of that negative ne negative um, mindset of, of of Britain. But to come here, of course, is a great liberation, and it's a great there's a great sense of uh, a, a, a weight being lifted from one's shoulders. There is, of course, the other side to all that American optimism you saw and you, you felt on the aircraft carrier. Because I kept saying to myself, reading you go to these crew members, talk to everyone, get their stories, someone's going to mention Jesus, someone's going to mention Jesus, someone's going to mention Jesus. How long in the actual experience was it before you started hearing about Jesus? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, it, it was funny. When I went to the church service, first of all, the, um, uh, the guy, I can't remember what, what his exact name was, you know, the, the guy who sort of ran the, the, uh, the, the area of worship, he was really at pains to express that it was a, you know, it wasn't a sectarian place. It wasn't, you know, it was a, for people of any religious persuasion. And I thought that's good and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I guess I should say at the outset that there's this quite common misapprehension of, uh, of America in Britain that, you know, there's this kind of, there's, there's, it's just full of, you know, uh, born-again lunatics, whereas... All with guns. Yeah, yeah, that's the sort of um, the kind of stereotype. But unless I'm mistaken, there is still this separation of church and state. So I think you're not allowed to have representations of Christianity in public school classrooms here, if I understand it correctly. So that's all. That's all good. They creep in and get challenged. Creep in and get challenged. Yeah, and of course that's 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 fantastic particularly fantastic now when we see what's happened in India with the, you know, which, uh, with the rise of this sort of, uh, of very, uh, uh, of Hindu nationalism. But anyway, then it became evident quite quickly that although there might have been the odd person of some different faith, uh, the main, when they were talking about the great range of, uh, of relig religious beliefs, it was more like the fantastic array of different beers that you get in a in a supermarket. These were all just the different versions of, of Christianity, Pentecostal, Baptist, and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it was pretty. It really was pretty fundamentalist Christian in a way that I'd never never encountered before. But um, you know, I was struck by the way I didn't find it. Um, I didn't really find it that objectionable. Um, and I also didn't, I mean, I was struck by the way I, I didn't have my usual disdainful reaction when I hear that people are religious, whereby I think, well, you know, you know, my normal would be, sort of, how stupid can you get? But I didn't feel that. Because that was 
the environment. You were, at, you were on this aircraft carrier in the middle of nowhere, just ocean, where really all you had was a lot of people, and a lot of them all they had was Jesus in their hearts, you know? Well, they've got a lot more in their hearts, you know, they've got a great sense of... Um, in reality, they do, but then they would say, well, I owe it all to Christ, some of them, not all of them. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's more that that Christian thing reinforced a particular belief in what America was, uh, a misguided belief, actually, in some instances of what America was, and uh, it underlaid their, under, underwrote their, you know, great commi commitment to the mission and all this kind of stuff. So it was, um, although, you know, the faith itself was quite, quite, quite straightforward. There was a, it, it, it was part of a, a, a more, of a, of a complex of other things as, as well. It brings to mind all these articles you read about. The, uh, the two Americas, or the forgotten America, or you know, the coastal America, and the inner America. And it seems overblown to me until I realize, I don't think I knew this America you were in any better than you knew this America you were in before you went. And I'm, I mean, we sit here in Los Angeles, and furthermore, Venice, you know, it's, do, you, do you have the sense as an outsider who now lives in America of there being a real mutual incomprehension? Well, uh, I guess one of the first things I learned about America is that you know, you can say America is X or Y, insert the word of your choice there, and it sounds true. And, of course, you can then repeat the exercise, inserting the exact, exactly the opposite word, and it's equally true. And I guess, uh, you know, it's, um, it's not for nothing that the great sort of founding poet of America, Walt Whitman, talks about the, you know, the ability to, uh, to, to embrace contradictions uh, like that, um, but it seems to me there's there are certain consistencies within these very different ideas of of, of what what America is, uh, and one of those is a sort of deep uh, a deep kind of uh, faith in the in the American way. Now, you might you might be on the one hand a completely sort of uh, um, you know straight down the line politically conservative religious uh, Christian opposed to gay marriage let's say and your commitment to the American way is absolute but then you can flip that around so easily and find that the most liberal kind of you know uh, gay gay married couples similar have a similar belief in the idea of, of America which you know throughout its history you know you just go back to the civil rights movement and there it was always it was uh, it was always couched in an appeal of how far short the existing reality had fallen compared with the ideal that America uh, was 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 meant to be. So it's uh, it's you know it, yeah it represents a, a standard to be to be uh, uh, constantly aspired to. I'm reminded of a line by a mutual friend of ours, Pico Iyer. He said, you know, if Americans don't travel, they're like they're like a man living in a hovel, assuming everybody else lives in a worse hovel. Does that ring a bell with you? Yeah, it's uh, oh, it's a it's a tricky thing, this, isn't it? Because you know, for example, the, this sort of American idea of um, you know uh, everyone can rise up through hard work and all this kind of stuff, which brings with it the idea that you can leave your hovel behind. But of course, as we you know, it's what I'm struck by is that uh, because college 
going to college, which is one of the sort of you know classic ways of of, of, of sort of getting on, because that's so expensive. Now it seems to me, in some ways, the sort of the possible people are much more sort of condemned to remain in the world they were born into than uh, you know that than than has been the case in in Britain, where uh, you know when university education was heavily funded by the state, there was quite a lot of social mobility. Written about that as your own experience of moving on up from a working class background to I don't even know what. Is there some writerly class in England? I don't know what class one even fits into when they do the job you do. Yeah, it's. Uh, but yeah, I'm certainly. I'm. It's one of the things I'm day conscious of. Actually, more and more as I get older, being a, a beneficiary of that particular, um, you know, uh, part of the, well, the post-war settlement. Now, tell me, how many Jeff in Venice jokes have you heard since moving here to Venice? Okay. <laughs> If you've got another one up your sleeve, Colin, I'm more than ready to hear it. But, I, know, uh, I just wonder. It's you know it it it's, uh, it was one of the reasons that I put on the uh, in the author information on the jacket of the new book. You know, he currently lives in Venice, California, because uh, yeah, I like you know I'm I I my willingness to hear versions of that joke is by no means exhaustive. Why do you live in Los Angeles? Oh. Yeah, I'm here because because of my wife's work. Uh, to cut a long story short, she um, had the chance of uh, of working here, and at first her offices were in Santa Monica. Now they're in Culver City, and you know, so um, I've always longed to live in California. Uh, it's been one of my one of the main ambitions of my life, but. I'd always dreamed of living in Northern California because, to be honest, I'd never really liked L.A. Like many English people, I'd just never been able to get to grips with it. And yet there's so many here. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, when you say there's so many here, there are so many here, I mean right here in Venice. And I think it's because, you know, we just can't, the rest of it is it's so unfathomable to us, whereas this is, um, uh, you know, this is sort of, you know, this is like some perfect version of what we what we want from a from a city but we i mean i feel that in a way when my wife and i i, don't, I feel we don't even live in la we just live in this little beach this little beach place called uh, called venice because uh for me the uh you know it, la is a kind of nightmare actually of this uh of the uh the uh what it's in in london you know i take great pride in we take great pride in not owning a car and it seems I do the same thing in Los Angeles oh, yeah. to a great many friends' annoyance. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's admirable, and of course it's Im- improving here. But yeah, it's uh, if if I if I was asked to sum up my idea of what I thought a completely wasted life would be, it would be a life spent sitting in traffic, and uh, I just can't bear it. So there's all sorts of stuff. You know, we miss out on the cultural life of LA as a whole because I just can't face the driving, which. I find incredibly stressful and uh, terrifying, and you know it's this. I mean, I'm not, not saying anything new here, but you know this place is a an ecological disaster. It brings to mind your countryman Rainer Banham, who came in the 70s and wrote Los Angeles: The Architecture of Four Ecologies. Became, ironically, one of the most noted celebrators of Los Angeles in that period, which to me seems like a much worse time in Los Angeles than today. But he said something that reminded me of what you said before that mental exercise about America where you 
make a statement, make its opposite, see that it's probably true. He said, it's difficult to say anything untrue about Los Angeles. Now that's, is there some, is the same phenomenon going on in America and Los Angeles where it's hard to get to grips with in that way and that's something you can enjoy but it's not easy to enjoy? I don't know where I'm going with that, but does it, does it have any resonance with you in your experience here? Is Los Angeles a microcosm of that thing about America? Do you know, I don't know LA enough uh, to, to say. I mean, all I can, I'm so sort of trapped within my own experience here, but I mean, what I could say is that, for example, what I, one of the things I miss, the thing that everybody loves about New York, that constant wisecracking and interacting with people on the street and the way you've got to keep your wits about you at all time because everybody you encounter is so sort of you know so clever and up for wisecracking and bantering that kind of stuff that really isn't a, a, a an aspect of of, of life of life here uh, but the, the contrast i would have with life here is the the three blissful months four months i spent in iowa city very very small Early said, blissful months in Iowa City. There we have it. I did the right semester. I did the fall semester, and it was only cold towards the end. But it was very, very different to here. So it's incredibly small, and also it's uh, oh, there's a real sense of uh, just sort of belonging there, really. And I think it's not at all unusual because of the nature of the architecture and the sprawl of it uh, to really not feel a great sense of belonging in Los Angeles, maybe you would feel a great sense of longing to your particular neighborhood. You hear a lot of that. I don't live in Los Angeles. I live in Santa Monica, Pasadena, West Hollywood. Those are all separate municipalities, but they're considered to be in Los Angeles. Or I don't live in Los Angeles. I'm downtown. Now that's more popular to say. It's There is there has been historically a lot of that. I don't live in the greater entity. I live in the smaller one. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it was something that I was so conscious of in in Iowa that it was this little place where it answered all of my all of my needs actually that I that I had they were all catered for and they're they're quite simple you know I wanted a place where I could get a a great cappuccino and there were two places with great great coffees there were two of the greatest bars on earth the Foxhead and George's a couple of great restaurants and crucially a consistently high quality of conversation because I remember this um, when this one of my grad students picked me up at Chicago Airport and he was telling me about what, what life was going to be like and he said um, you know if you don't mind hanging out with your students and I remember thinking that's exactly what I don't want to do Buster you know it's like drop me off at home and then I'll see you in class and that'll be it anyway that particular guy became <laughs> Well, probably my closest friend in, in Iowa City. And then, actually, within about three weeks of getting there, I was spending all of my time hanging out with these grad students because they were so, so fantastic, clever, all this kind of stuff. And there were these wonderful nights in George's or the Foxhead where I realized that everybody I knew and liked was in the bar. So every, in a way, every, every there'd be these nights where they'd just be like a perfect party. I would say, in a, in a way... LA is the is you know is the obvious opposite of that because it's so you know because of this um, uh, you know the far flung nature of it. Now, having read about your cappuccino hunts elsewhere, I did want to ask. Yes, you, you did that in Iowa City, but in Venice, how has the cappuccino drinking been for you? Well, it's been of, of course great when, um, in um, uh, intelligentsia where they've they've raised the art of uh, 
coffee making to this incredible sort of seriousness. Um, but in a way, you know, these are not great. These are not great coffee times for me because I've had to um, really cut down on the pastry, yeah, the pastry in, intake. And um, you know, because when I was in living in Williamsburg, the local cafe started stocking donut plant donuts. Was, I think it was the only cafe in maybe in Brooklyn where they stocked donut plant donuts. So I really, you know, I was really getting through a lot of donuts. And then, you know, once I had this stroke, uh, I, I, I really had to. Uh, you know, I felt at one point I'd eaten my last donut, but actually I was back in back in New York recently, and a guy obviously hadn't heard about this thing. He turned up to interview me with three donuts from the donut plant. It was like I don't know. It was like a version of sort of Philip Seymour Hoffman falling off the wagon, you know. And uh, I thought, God, yeah, I could be back on a sort of a three bag a three bag a day donut habit. Now, this guy hadn't read the article in the Los, in the uh, London Review of Books that you wrote about this stroke. I mean, how quickly after the stroke were you writing an article about it? Oh, um, very quickly I, I saw that there was an opportunity for uh, generating revenue. <laughs> <laughs> While still in the hospital or soon after being released or how quickly? Uh, well, uh, although I put it rather sort of uh, jokingly like that, I mean, I was obviously conscious at quite an early stage of something quite profound happening to me. And, you know, anything that, uh, that, anything that happens to you like that, of course, it's, it's, you know, the chances are you're going to write about it, especially if it's one of these things where, you know, it was a personal thing that happened. It was something that happened to me. But, you know, it had such obvious general sort of ramifications. So once again, I felt I could just use... I could just be, to use this English expression, I could just be the canary in the coal mine, you know, and this particular experience would, uh, you know, illuminate some more general uh, truth. It also seems to encapsulate this fear. I People from other countries, but especially England, I hear this from them. They're going to come to Los Angeles, come to Southern California, and... They talk about being sort of incapacitated by the place, but not literally by a stroke. They think that they think, they think something about Southern California will weaken them. In this case, you had a, a physical condition that could could have weakened you much more than it did. Certainly. Yeah. Except, I mean, I would disagree with you slightly. I thought I was going to come to California and really begin, you know, the kind of fittest and healthiest phase of my life. So it really. It somewhat sucked to find that within something like eight days of getting here, I'd had a frigging stroke. Yes, you know. Somewhat sucked to, do, to put it to put it mildly. But thinking about Venice, uh, the strokes aside, from your experience here, tell me if there's any resonance between. I guess there wouldn't be, but Venice in, a, in previous eras, less expensive eras, more decrepit eras, Venice was sort of the Brixton of its of its day, the Brixton in the color of memory in the 80s, where it was tumble down. I mean, the houses with the canals were just shacks with muddy ditches of water, and nothing cost anything in Venice, I guess, in the 70s and even the 80s. It, it seems like it could have had the same environment of neglect and freedom. It's something we touched on before, but, I mean, was that in the sort of color of memory time? Was, was the neglect tied up with the freedom in a sort of inextricable way? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true, and it's one of the things that I'm conscious of in that book the color of memory they go to quite a lot of these parties sort of warehouse parties or you know parties in abandoned 
industrial places. I should say that The Color of Memory, it's published in 1989, and it's a kind of pre-rave era that it describes. So it's before the kind of the no, you know, nobody in the part, nobody in that book. They don't go to any any of these sort of what was called acid house parties, where you know where people take ecstasy, that kind of thing. But even before then, there were a load of parties, not with that particular kind of music or that drug, in um, you know in abandoned spaces. Now, one of the things that's really noticeable in London is that it's become filled in totally. Everything has been turned, every available space has been uh, turned into a startup or uh, or some sort of form of branded leisure, this kind of stuff. Very different in a place like Berlin, where there's plenty of room still. And I think it's really, it's a sign, it's really... It's not good when a city gets filled in like that, when the, when the real estate thing has, has reached sort of saturation point. And I, I think you're probably right about uh, 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 the analogy with, uh, w- with Venice. And now, of course, it's, I mean, it's, um, yeah, every, everywhere is being bought up. And what I'm struck by is something not at all, and again, this is not something at all original, but there was a, there was a place that I was quite, sort of, I really liked the look of it. It was a, a house, be, a, a, a sort of lot was being built. And I was cycling past one day and I saw the guys there and I asked if I could have a look at it because it just seemed a potentially nice place. And it, indeed it was. But what they'd done is they'd taken this lot and then they just built the, the house right up to the limits of the lot. So this little place next door, it was within touching distance and it was totally... Uh, yeah, the only possible word, word is was totally blighted by this new development. So these people who'd been living there in this little bungalow next door for however long, you know, they would then have this whopping great place sort of overlooking them, really casting their lives into shadow. And that was just, that was just awful, really. So I think there's that it's so... And then I've read articles about the way that some planning restrictions were, were loosened and all this kind of stuff. And I think one, on the one hand, one of the great things about LA is the incredible architectural, the famous architectural diversity. Whereas, you know, the whole sort of heritage Britain kind of thing has led to a kind of stifling of, of vernacular innovation. But, you know, it's really awful if, if, uh, if everyone is just building these kind of, uh, if everywhere they're, they're building these places which are completely destroying any kind of you know, the kind of, uh, the social fabric of, of, of the area. Now, when last time we talked a few years back was for the release of the American Essay Collection, otherwise known as The Human Condition. And I think to start that off, I opened up to the photo of you in the book on the rooftop there in Brixton. And I was just in London, and like any of your readers would have done, I took a double-decker bus, seat front row, top deck, down to Brixton uh, to see what, if there was any of Jeff Dyer's Brixton left. I wouldn't know, of course, to see it, but I guess I can pull up. This requires me to open up my phone. I can pull up a picture of my own, of me, in Brixton. Um, yes, that look, looks looks familiar to you. Well, how touching, um, Colin, that you went on a pilgrimage to uh, <laughs> just as just as I might have gone on a pilgrimage to the place where the Buddha was born. You went, <laughs> you went on this pilgrimage to Ephra Road, and I think the thing about one of the things I'm conscious of in my life is that I've had this incredible ability to live in the right place at the wrong time. It's just amazing, really. So, you know, in London most recently, I've been living in Ladbroke Grove, which is without question going through the most boring period of its entire existence. 
Then, before then, we lived in Camden, where I'd aspired to live all the time when I'd lived in Brixton, and that was going through probably the worst period in its in its history. And when I lived in in Brixton, you know, it was really it was really rough and all this kind of stuff. And now, Brixton has become this incredible sort of uh, uh, hub, and it's but it's uh, not a hub. That makes it sound like. God, uh, Atlanta, you know, an airport hub, hub, hub like Atlanta City, but a real just great sort of place with loads of restaurants in contrast to this affluent area of London where I live where there's actually no good reasonably priced restaurants. So, yeah, it's uh, it's just, it's you know, it's I can't bear to go down to Brixton, partly because... Um, Oh, because, I mean, just because it was a phase of my life that, that's sort of over with. But, yeah, everyone is telling me of how fantastic it is now. And so it, I never had to put money in my shoe. I never felt like that was going to be a concern. I, I, you know, and it's, of course, underlying all of this is just a basic thing. I wish I'd, wish I'd got my foot on the real estate ladder down there <laughs> earlier. It all comes back to real estate <laughs> concerns. Ephra Road, it's, it's a big part of that essay on finding the right cappuccino and croissant wherever you go I mean you talk a lot about in that essay about how you you just wear a place thin with with use you probably still have Ephra Road completely memorized right right now every detail of Ephra Road at the time and I went down that road thinking what what if I what if I knew this road that intimately what would it be like but just I feel like I didn't see a lot on Ephra Road these days no, that's one of the things that when I, the rare occasions when I do go down to Brixton, it looks architecturally still pretty much unchanged. So the main road outside the outside the tube station, you know, is still pretty sort of gr- pretty gritty. And Ephra Road is, yeah, it's just uh, it's just this sort of thoroughfare. But I think um, you know it, it's in that area of the covered market where there's all these restaurants and stuff. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's not it's not uh, what can one say architecturally that. Nobody would say that Ephra Road is a, you know, an area of, that needs to be, um, you know, preserved because of its outstanding architectural beauty. It went through lots of changes when I was there. You know, what would what had been an empty sort of factory space then became a little, a t- tiny sort of retail park, which was great for the one occasion when I needed to buy a fridge. It was it was incredibly handy. Um, but yeah, so no, I think it's one of these things. I remember. I think it's not uncommon. You go to visit these famous neighbourhoods. I remember when my fi- wife and I first went down to sort of to, to look at Williamsburg, and we went there, and we couldn't sort of find the great hip Williamsburg because, uh, well, we just couldn't. Um, and uh, I think that that could easily happen uh, for a, a pilgrim trying to find, um, you know, Jeff Dyer's Brixton. But of course, in years to come, I'm very very optimistic that there will be a blue plaque on uh, Crownstone Court saying that I I, uh, I languished there for several years now you got a chance to revise your novel of Brixton The Color of Memory, you got to take things out and you have a bit in the introduction about that what you did, how you streamlined the book a bit but how would the book be different if you were writing a novel now, looking back trying to capture that era of Brixton right, what a what a Fantastic question. Yeah, it would be. I mean, huh, well, it would be obviously elegiac, but then when I was rereading it, and in fact, perhaps, perhaps even when I was writing it, it was there was quite a strong elegiac note. 
and I don't think the I don't think an elegiac thing is the same thing as a nostalgic thing. Um, I'm saying that off the top of my head, and I don't think I've got the brain power now to elaborate on that distinction. But just as a hunch, I think that I think it's a sustainable distinction. Um, and um, I think the other thing is that you see back then it was so much this sort of heyday of sort of radical feminists mm. and you know I can so remember how much just we all men and women we just hated those we hated Martin Amis because he was considered so right wing and he was so sexist because you know there was these women and he'd talk about them wearing underwear and this kind of stuff and I can so clearly remember there was this advertisement on the tube it was for some sort of women's uh, you know lingerie and it was something like uh, underneath they're all lovable and this drove us you know me and my women friends nuts it was so outrageous it showed a sort of woman slinking around you know and um, anyway so I think one of the things there it's so coy about sex that book and there's a, there's a gain in that in that you know there's this love interest there's these of course people are, 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 are sort of falling in love with each other and are forming crushes and there's the sort of climactic sexual moment in that book is just this kiss that takes place on the rooftops. And it's very much in the style of those old films, you know, their lips meet and then the screen fades to black. And as a result of that, I think that kiss has great sort of romantic uh, residue. But I remember being, I was so sort of worried that you couldn't sort of, God, you really couldn't describe, you couldn't, you couldn't look at a wo woman's legs because that would be to, to be uh, objectifying her. So you, you didn't, to clarify, I feel like if I, if I were thinking those thoughts now, I would be forcing myself to think them and say these things so that I might impress a woman. You were, think, you were actually feeling this, this oh, way. Oh, my God, I was so, it to so totally the... Um, you know, some version of the Susan Brown Miller uh, thing, or you know, yeah, it was. It, it really did absolutely. You know, it was because of. You know, it really did form my my consciousness. And uh, now I think what I what what would have to happen. You know, I'd certainly make the sort of uh, the uh, uh, you know the. I think that there was a an inconsistency really between the way that everything else was so explicitly described. And then, by the way, it so quickly went hazy as soon as anything um, sort of vaguely sexual went on. And, uh, yeah, that kind of coyness, I think it's one of the reasons why, there's, uh, why the later novels, Paris Trance and um, Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi, were sexually so explicit to partly to get away from that, from that coyness. But, yeah, that... Um, yeah, it really, I really wasn't just trying to be ideologically right on, but it was that was ideologically sound. Yeah, yeah, that was a word that came up so much. But yeah, it was just how, yeah, it's just how, how I was. But I know that seems, you know, we all we my male actually not just my all we all look back now on some sort of amazement that we uh, we got so into that kind of really some of course some of it was sensible but other other aspects of it were just sort of uh, just ab absurd you talk about this in the terms somebody would talk about bell bottoms in the 1970s i can't believe we let our pants get that big i mean yeah. it seems like exactly the same thing right yes, indeed so it was in a way it was just a, a sort of phase of ideological uh, fashion but yeah that really was the that was the full white heat of radical radical feminism um, 
in the intro to The Color of Memory, you write about how when you were the age of the, char- of the protagonist in this book, you, you, had a, you had imposed upon yourself a sort of discipline that to the outside eye was indistinguishable from shiftlessness, but you, you had imposed, you had actually imposed a structure upon yourself. In the new book, In Another Great Day at Sea, you're on this boat with hundreds and hundreds of 20-somethings who have this system imposed upon them, this rigorous discipline where they know when they're getting up, they know what they're doing, they know what they're, when they're exercising, they know what crappy food they're eating and when. No matter what, do we simply need to subject ourselves to systems? Well, there's a world of difference between having a, um, a system imposed on you and, uh, and generating your, your own one. Uh, they did volunteer for that system, technically. I mean, of course, there's complications. Maybe they were too poor not to, but... Yes, indeed. And that's the last act of free will, really. You sign up for the military and you exercise your freedom at that point. And after that, you know, you sign on the line. And from that moment on, it's, you know, you're not, you're not your own boss. Um, but I think in, for me, you see, I went, because I went to Oxford, where um, there was this, of course, on the timetable of the week, there were lectures you could go to. But it was con- nobody went to lectures, so your only commitment was to go to this uh, one tutorial a week with your with your tutor, who made it so obvious that he had better things to be doing. So the whole of one's education was kind of self-determined, de- really. So that thing of organising your time quickly became second nature, and. Um, you know, by the time I was living on the dole in in, uh, in Brixton, the idea that I would just, um, you know, the idea that one might just sit around watching TV or something was, uh, well, you know, one was not going to do that. Uh, and in, in a weird way, I, I sort of feel I've continued, just continued being a student, uh, or in get, I've continued being in some sort of... Uh, this sort of program of self-funded education for the for the sort of rest of rest of my days. You hear that from students sometimes. Somebody who's been in grad school 15 years say they'll say, "I don't know what to do but be a student." And some of these Navy guys said, "I would. I don't know what I would do if I wasn't in the Navy." You know, the, people sort of lock into their tracks, and at some point you go down far enough it. It gets hard to imagine being on any other track. And when does that happen? Well, in in the case of many of these guys in the Navy, it, it would happen, uh, it could easily happen at more or less the same time that an athlete's career would typically come to an end. You know, a lot of these people join up when they're 17 or 18, they put in a good long shift, and then they're, you know, they're out of it, often on a sort of, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think on a full pension or whatever it is you get. Put uh, in their 20 or whatever. Then. Oh, you know, by the time they're 35, you know, and then they're, um, you know, they, uh, they're ready then to, uh, to, to move on to a, a, some sort of civilian job. And, you know, if uh, it's, it's, you know, and of course, many of them have been incredibly good at their jobs in the Navy. Uh, I don't know what the, I imagine studies have been done to show how well that particular skill in the Navy, say, in the military, can translate into uh, being good in a civilian um, in, in a civilian environment. Um, you know, it might be the case that employers look very, very favorably on somebody who's had a, a, a military background. It is possible. It shows you can follow orders. If nothing else, that's, that's for absolutely sure. But on this aircraft carrier... What, how much of a structure did you have in your mind, or I mean, 
I'm sure Alain de Baton didn't give you one, but how much? what was your mandate here on this boat, just to notice as much as possible and figure it out as you went what this book was going to be? Yeah, there was no mandate at all. What I should say is that, you know, this was the idea is that um, at that point, uh, six writers were going to go to different places, and we were all going to write books of uh, 35,000 words. And beyond that, it was carte blanche. So, uh, it, you know, it was just up the particular nature of a given book would be down to this sort of wedding between the place and the and the writer and then i mean for various reasons that the series itself fell into there were difficulties and i think at first only three of the six books got written and for me initially it was a rather it was the most boring book that i'd ever had to write because i'd had the experience i'd been on the carrier I knew what I made of the experience, which was great. So the writing of it just involved a transcription of the experience, quite apart from that kind of transcription that many people, uh, many people do, you know, where you have to transcribe interviews. But, that, you know, that, I'm not thinking of that. I'm more thinking of just, you know, this, it happened, and then I had to write it up. Um, and then two things happened. One is I found out the just to give myself a, a kind of safety net, I thought it was a good idea to, to write quite a bit. So I wrote about 70,000 words. So the book was a, twice as long as it needed to be. And then I found, not surprisingly, that I'd become rather attached to those 70,000 words. And then having that number of words, I saw that actually it had become much more of a book, more, much more of a Jeff Dyer book than it sort of had to be. How did you know when it became a Jeff Dyer book? Uh, when I started having fun with the with the writing of it, which came rather late in the day, and it got sort of oh, beach belly business. Exactly that. Yeah, there's the bit where it goes into the third person, and then you know, then I started chuckling to myself when I was writing, and that was all all good fun, and um, you know, and then when it turned out it was going to be because of the difficulties with the publication aspect of the series it was possible to publish it independently here as though it was a, a, a just a sort of book by me um, as opposed to just part of a series well uh, I, I felt yeah it is a book by me although the one thing it doesn't have which I say with yeah not, not with any great arrogance but I think it's true all the other books have been structurally quite interesting and innovative Structurally, this is very, very straightforward. It begins on me fl with me flying onto the aircraft carrier and ends with me flying, flying off it and landing again in Bahrain. So, structurally, nothing interesting going on. I mean, as 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 a reader of the book, an interesting book nonetheless, even if it's not fragmented into pieces I don't recognize as a traditional book. You know, it's it's this issue of place again. You know, Brixton of the 1980s and the color of memory. Uh, the place of Los Angeles where we are now, which I've spent a few years trying to understand. Was the aircraft carrier, the USS George H.W. Bush, a place to understand in the same way that for you any place has been a place to understand? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, do you know, I, I think I wasn't there long enough to arrive at that kind of conclusion. So it's much more just a kind of relaying of my... Uh, you know, how I was feeling, what I was thinking, and what I was seeing, almost on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I, think to, to a, I think to do what you're suggesting would have required longer than, 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 I, than I had, and a, a deeper immersion in, in the experience. 
It's like you say when traveling, you need a few months so you can not be traveling some of those days. So some of the days are just you existing, whereas on the carrier, every day you had to get out there and notice, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know, I've said this before somewhere, you know, I really hate having to notice stuff. I just love being oblivious to the world. So the, uh, um, yeah, and I, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I was doing a lot of noticing, uh, and but it wasn't just the kind of noticing that I do like to do, which is noticing funny little things. I felt that really, um, you know, there was much more straight down the line reporting that needed to be done. And I realized quite early on that, you know, I, I really don't like to report and I'm barely able to report. And so, you know, in a way, I can imagine that people would go to the, if, if somebody was reading this book, not because it was by me, but because they go into a bookstore and say, oh, you know, I like books about naval ships. Yes, you, just, you picture the guy, I think you said, did you say at some point a man gets to an age all he reads is military history? Yeah, that's yeah. one of those guys. That's right. And, uh, you know, you might think, oh, yeah, I like aircraft carriers and military jets. I'll read this. And I can imagine for that kind of reader, it would just be an incredible, uh, a, a, not just a disappointment, but a really irritating disappointment because of all this me waffling on about myself. But because well, you don't remember always someone's rank or things like that? Those would be quite minor uh, <laughs> inadequacies. I think the whole, they might just find it just sort of, just the presence of the, the authorial personality kind of intrusive and, uh, and irritating. Um, I just wanted to hear about the ship. He keeps saying I. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And, you know, but... Uh, I sort of felt that, you know, something something useful was coming out of this um, sort of collision between my sensibility and the uh, and, and the place. So when you're sitting there among the higher officers, the captain and such, they're smoking cigars. You're there in the dark amid their smoke. Was there ever a moment you were thinking, well, if the cards had lay in a different direction, maybe I too would be a ship's captain? Or did it seem like a divide that was unbridgeable at some point? Oh yeah, there's no way I could have um, got into in, into that kind of life. But um, you know, one of the things is that uh, um, you know I really liked so many other people and I enjoyed their company. And you know, I've been to um, I've been to a number of dinners here in Los Angeles where I've been so so bored. Uh, partly because uh, if nobody's making jokes, if there's no wit then I get bored very quickly I mean and people were very funny on the air there was a lot of bantering as as I think there has to be in this kind of uh, closed environment so I was yeah it was really it was consistently um, sort of st so I really I related to these people even though their lives were so entirely different to mine and also I I mean I really did I admired them wholeheartedly it doesn't take long to come to the point where you're tearing up along with them, right? When when they are. Well, they weren't tearing up. Well, they, would, they would be if they could allow themselves that. They Maybe inside. They were doing some equivalent. Uh, I think none of them were tearing up. I think it was just this sort of sentimental kind of thing. Of, oh, it doesn't take much to make me tear up. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, there was just some incredible... Just There were just some really great moments of my life took place in the little time I was on the on the, the beach. And, you know, actually, 
so I'm pretty confident they weren't tearing up. But in a way, I mean, you know, part of my job description was to be in a state, was to be there and to be capable of tearing up, or at least being capable of responding uh, adequately to, to things, some of which were really incredibly moving. And as well, you can entertain certain thoughts that I would think an officer on that ship isn't doesn't allow themselves to. Like you're on a helicopter that just circles for three hours at a time. You're thinking, you know, what if all this what if all this is accomplishing nothing? What if this is not worth it? There's billions of dollars of effort. And it's you know it's like you're in a Graham Greene novel at a certain point. You know, what if this Cold War is just nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's um it's one of the things I've always done really. I've always felt very uh, sort of confident about giving free rein to the sort of vagaries of my own nature and the peculiarities of my own take on things. So, uh, um, you know, and I think in a way, you know, that that's where the interest of the book lies, actually, in the fact that this is uh, uh, a, a peculiar sensibility as opposed to just a diligent kind of reporter. Now, I really want to make clear I'm not at all knocking diligent reportage on the contrary i mean I, i'm sort of on on record as saying it's the kind of writing i most enjoy at the moment but you know the thing is it was it was me on the aircraft carrier and so i might as well bring to that job the things that i'm good at as opposed to trying to pass myself off as somebody else you know so i if you like i i i, I ended up i ended up doing what, in a sense, I'd been commissioned to do, which was to diarize the, uh, the, the experience. For whatever way, yes. It's, <laughs> I want to know, you know, will, will we ever see a diarized view of Los Angeles? I want to know what questions this place is putting into your head. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know, but uh, I'm certainly always at the, at the mercy of my own experience, so... Um, yeah, we. I, uh, I, I've got no plans to write a, uh, a, a book about LA, but I'm here, and yeah. I've been speaking here with Jeff Dyer, the author of many books, fiction, nonfiction, and the stuff in between. His new one is Another Great Day at Sea, Life Aboard the USS George H.W. Bush, and he's got the reissues from Grey Wolf Press right now of two early novels, The Color of Memory and The Search. Jeff, thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Colin. Great pleasure. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org or with me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks.